How is everybody? Good. The ones that made it to church this morning. Glad you're here. So that hour change, right? Um, okay. Hey, uh, usually, you know, I, I come up here and I don't know, give you some shtick about my life or something that, that I know you guys are probably typically bored with. Um, something, though, that I wanted to say that I find interesting, uh, at this church, Kyle and I, we don't like synchronize the music and the message thing. I always kind of thought that was cheesy, you know, when the pastor calls and it's like, hey, I'm going to be teaching on this. Make sure you do this song. We don't do that. And, um, but I find it interesting. That last song that they sang is exactly what we're going to be talking about today from Acts chapter 17. Kyle picks his set list about a week and a half before the weekend that he does it. Um, I'm not that sharp. I do my sermon the week of, you know, and so... He's already picked out his songs before I put together my lesson, so it's neat. All the stuff in that last song is gonna be um, exactly what we're gonna be talking about today. Now, we've been in the book of Acts. If you have not been with us, and if you're completely unfamiliar with the book of Acts, it's the fifth book of the New Testament right after the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And it's essentially about the men and women who followed Christ going out all over the world. And as we've seen, right now they're in Europe. We saw that these uh, different missionaries, um, led by a guy named Paul, are going out. They've crossed the Aegean Sea from what is modern-day Turkey into a whole new continent, the continent of Europe. They're in North Greece is where we're at. And we're starting to see as they're working their way kind of southwest and then eventually kind of down south, they're starting to plant churches. They're starting to tell people about Jesus. We've seen uh, a church start in an area called Philippi, which is where we get the book of Philippians. We see a church started in Thessalonica, where we get the books of First and Second Thessalonians. I think it's next week we're going to see Paul in Corinth, where we get the books of First and Second Corinthians, letters written to those churches. And where we are today, though, is we are going to talk about Paul in the city of Athens, which is very, very fascinating. Now, the way that Paul ended up in Athens, if you weren't here last week, is they had gone to a couple of different areas. They were in an area called Berea. And we talked about last week that the people of Berea were exceptional people. That when Paul went into Berea, the people in Berea, the Bereans, they were eager to hear the truth. Not only eager to hear the truth, they examined it. They fact-checked, right? So they didn't just take the guy's word for it, Paul. They went back to the Old Testament and they fact-checked him to make sure that what they were hearing was accurate. So we talked about last week, we are to be like the Bereans. We're to be eager to know the truth and we're also to fact-check and research and study because the Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God. So we talked about last week, truth. That we need to want to pursue truth, but when we find truth, sometimes we're not always able to handle Truth. We're not always uh, willing to accept the truth because it might infringe on some of the ways we live. So we asked ourselves last week, do we really want the truth? And I, I hope we do, right? This week we're going to talk about this. So Paul has left this area of Berea because there's actually physical threats against these, these different uh, missionaries. They kind of split and go different directions. Paul ends up in South Greece in an area called Athens, that most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with to at least some degree. And when we get into Athens, we're going to talk from this lesson about a couple of different points that come up. The first one is we're going to ask if we have idols, right? We're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to ask the question, if we do have idols, have we repented for those things? Have we asked God to forgive us, and have we changed the way that we think and act? And then the last thing we're going to talk about is the song talked about. We're going to talk about the resurrection, and do we still believe in the power of the resurrection? And do we believe that we are resurrected as Christians? Do we believe that? So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Is anyone else's allergies just killing them so far this season? Sorry, that was just a side note. I was just sitting here. I could feel my nose tickling a little bit as I was talking. And my eyeballs are like always on fire now. So um, anyways, that's beside the point. So <laughs> you should have a notes handout in front of you. If you have a Bible, we're in the 17th chapter of the fifth book of the New Testament, starting in verse 16. And um, if you have a smartphone, the version app, we're about a week and a half away from having our own app, right? Which is kind of neat. That's how you know you've made it as a church. You have your own app, right? That was a joke. But anyways, so if you have the version app, though, it has all the notes, it has all the scripture, all that on there. It's very, very helpful. Okay, so I'm going to pray. We're going to dive into this. I, I think you'll dig this. It's a very, very neat part of the book of Acts, okay? So I'm going to pray, and we'll jump into this. 
Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. God, please keep your hand on us today, Lord. I pray, God, that we've come into this place open-minded and objective, God, and, and, and eager to hear the word and, and to break it down and to study it. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who is not a believer, not a Christian, I just pray that they feel welcome, comfortable, and I pray, God, that they're also open-minded and they can hear some really, really solid fundamental truths today. Lord, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for all the great nonprofits in our city, specifically Stepping Stones that we're working with this month that works with homeless women and children. God, we pray, Lord, uh, that you keep your hand on me, that I deliver this message with accuracy, with grace and love, but also with firmness and truth, God. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting in verse 16, I'm gonna read a little bit. Again, I think you guys will like this chapter, the rest of this chapter, and uh, we'll break it down, okay? Here we go. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities, because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about these new teachings you are presenting, because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Now, if you're not familiar with Athens, Athens would have been the equivalent, the ancient equivalent to a modern-day New York City or a modern-day Paris, France, right? Not in population, but in cultural influence, right? So it was the intellectual capital of Greece. Not only the intellectual capital, it was the idolatry capital of Greece. They say, historians believe that there were more idols and shrines in Athens than there were humans. Lots and lots of idols. So this is where Socrates is from, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, they all lived in Athens, and this city had temples and shrines and statues all over the place to remind them of the gods and to remind them of their glorious past, right? Greece has an amazing past, and they wanted to, to, to remember that. Now, this was overload for Paul. <laughs> Paul, who believes in one God, now finds himself in a city with, with countless gods. And so he's there, and he's looking around, and it's like his head's about to explode, Right? There's this raw paganism everywhere. They did a lot of very hedonistic things. There's idolatry everywhere. So he's like, uh, I got to go talk to someone about this. He goes to the synagogue and he starts reasoning with them. Guys, what the heck, right? That's what he's saying. Find some other Jews like him and he starts reasoning with them. Then he goes into the marketplace and he starts reasoning with anyone that'll listen to him in the marketplace. Now in the marketplace, there's a couple of different kinds of philosophers that would hang out. One group was the Epicureans. Now, there's a lot of things about the Epicureans, but one of the main things about them is they believed in the gods, but they didn't believe that the gods had any intervention in human lives. So there was a separation between humanity and the gods. Then you had the Stoics, which many of you have probably studied Stoicism in, in high school or in college. And Stoicism, not only did they not show much emotion, they believed that, that right and wrong was a personal issue. There was no universal right and wrong. It was a personal thing. You kind of determined your own right and wrong. So they looked at Paul, and they thought, A, he was a show-off, right? And they also thought he was ignorant. What in the heck does this guy know? Who is this guy, right? Why is he talking to us right now? And so though some of them scoffed at him, some other Athenians, people of Athens, were intrigued by him. So the Greeks loved knowledge and they loved philosophical debate. If you ever hear me talk about Roman Greece, the big difference between Rome and Greece is the Greeks were like the ones that would sit at coffee shops and like sip their coffee and just discuss things and talk about philosophy. The Romans conquered. So the reason why Rome conquered Greece is Greece was sitting around like, you know, philosophically debating things and Rome was busy conquering the world. That's exactly what happened. So some of them though were intrigued by this preacher of foreign deities. 
And they said, hey, go with us up to the Areopagus. We call that Mars Hill, if you've ever heard that before. And they wanted to hear his teachings. Now, Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, was the area... It was a hill where they would convene kind of these different courts, and it was where all of the aristocrats would come, the influential, affluential men and women of Athens would come and they would discuss philosophy, they would discuss government, they would discuss all these different things, right? These rich aristocrats would get together and do that at Mars Hill. So this was an extremely important audience. Now, just for a visualization, And most of you have seen the Parthenon in Nashville, so you can visualize what the Parthenon in Athens looked like, right? So imagine, he's sitting there on Mars Hill, right to his right laid the the Parthenon right there, to his left and down the hill laid the the, uh, uh, Agora, which was the marketplace, and Paul sits up here with the most influential, affluential people in Athens, Greece. Now, it wasn't just Athens, though. The people and the culture of Athens spread and set the tone for the entire country of Greece. And now Paul finds himself in a position to speak to the most powerful people in the entire country and most influential people. And so these Greeks were philosophers, always intrigued with hearing something new. But Paul didn't have anything new to tell them. In fact, he was going to tell them something extremely old. He was going to talk about creation. He came and he, I don't want to talk about something new. Let me tell you about the beginning. Let me tell you about the genesis of it all, the start of it all, the creator God and his relationship with his creation, mankind. So the cultural and intellectual leaders, the ones that thought they kind of knew it all, right? They were successful. They were educated. They were rich. They thought they had it all down. Paul is about to let them know that they were, in fact, the ones who were ignorant, okay? Sorry about this slide. I noticed I put idols right next to that, like, statue's butt. And um, (laughs) after I did it, I came in here, and I put it on the screen. I was like, ah, but now I was, like, too lazy to change it by that point. And I was like, we're just going to have to deal deal with it. So anyways. (laughs) (laughs) The 7 o'clock last night, you would have thought it was a bunch of, like, teenage girls, man. They were all, like, chuckling the whole time, and, like, for, like, five minutes. I'm like, guys. Let's get, come on, seriously. So Paul, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar in which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of the heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they may seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find Him, though He is not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move, and have our being, as some of of your poets have said, for we are also His offspring. There is so much deep theology in that part right there. It's unbelievable. There is so much spoken in just a couple of lines, and we'll break that down here in a second. Here's how I want to start this off, though. As Paul, listen, this is very careful. This is very important. As Paul gets in front of people who were non-believers, right? They'd never even heard the name Jesus. They believed in multiple gods, and they did very hedonistic things, right? We would have called these very bad sinners, right? So as Paul gets in front of all these people, the first thing he says is not, you're going to burn in hell for eternity unless you change. That's not the way he started. Why? Because that doesn't get you much traction with people, right? Walk up to a random stranger, hey, are you going to have fun in hell forever? Because that's where you're going, right? Uh, Yeah, let me buy you a cup of coffee and tell me how bad I am, right? You know, like, that's not how relationships form and start. So Paul walked up and he actually complimented them. He said, I can see that you guys are very spiritual people. I can see. He found some common ground with them. And so the Athenians were spiritual people. They were just ignorant to the true spirit 
Jesus. That's why Christians are sent to go educate people on Jesus. Not to condemn them and put them down because it says in the Bible that Jesus didn't even come to condemn. He came to save people. So here's the thing. We can find good qualities and we can find common ground with virtually anybody. We need to have a conversation with them. We need to get to know them a little bit. We need to find what, what things we can relate on first and then we can start to move forward with them and build a bridge and eventually talk about Jesus Christ. But if you start the conversation with all the things that we differ on and all the things that they may be wrong on, you're not gonna get very far with people, okay? And so we learn that from Paul. And so because they asked him to talk about Jesus, he's gonna talk about Jesus. And so he starts off with an object lesson because Paul is a, a wonderful teacher. And he says, when I was walking through your great city, he goes, I noticed there was temples and shrines and statues to all these different kinds of gods. And he says, I noticed that there was so many of them that there was even made one, uh, one made out to an unknown God. Now, here's the thing about that. The Greeks would erect statues to unknown gods in order to cover all their bases. They would, they would create gods just to make sure that they didn't leave anyone out, right? So they would create this statue or this plaque or this, this, this um, monument and they would say, well, you know, unknown God, we don't know your name, but here's your, here's your monument. We don't want to leave you out. And so Paul wanted to enlighten them on just who that unknown God was. He saw this as an opportunity. Well, they know that there's this other God. I'm going to show them who this other God is. And it's the God of the Bible, the true God, the only God. So Paul starts to fill in the blanks. And he's going to tell them who this unknown God is really is. Now he starts off by saying, guys, there's only one God. This unknown God that you speak of is actually the only God. There's not a, a multitude of gods. And this one God made the world and he made everything in the world. Now this would have been crazy for the Greeks. They had a God for the waters. They had a God for uh, the land. They had a God for the sun and the moon and the stars. They had gods for all kinds of different things. And the idea that there was one all-encompassing God that had created everything and there's not multitudes of gods, that would have been way too much for some of them to handle. They just wouldn't have been able to fathom such a thought. And so he goes on. He says, most of your gods live in temples and shrines. And he says, the true God is not contained by a temple and a shrine. So virtually every single line that Paul speaks about God in this part that I just read to you would have contradicted Greek religion at that time. Virtually everything he said. And this is what he says. Very, very core doctrines of God right here. He says, one, there is one God. Not a multiplicity of gods, one God. He doesn't live in shrines and temples. He's not served by human hands, which means God doesn't need us. We need God. He doesn't need us. He doesn't play favorites. And we are all made from him. Every human is made from him. Paul also mentioned something that would have blown their mind. He says, and the whole reason God did all this is so that we may seek him out and have a relationship with him. And I love how he throws in, he goes, God's not that far from you. The Athenians would have thought that their gods were way off in the distance, right? Vengeful and mad and that they had to do all these things to please them. And Paul says, no, 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 God loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you and he's here, he's near you, he's close to you. That just would have been a lot. Again, this would have been blowing their minds. So one of the things about the people of Athens, the Athenians, is they believed they were unique to all other people on planet Earth. They thought that they came from their soil in Athens and that no one on Earth was quite like the Athenians. Now, Paul kind of bursts that bubble when he says, no, 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 all humanity came from one source and it wasn't from Athens, right? It was actually in another continent where all of humanity came from, right? From a guy named Adam. Now, listen, I hope this doesn't offend you. That's not my point to offend you. I love the United States. I'm glad that I live here. It's the greatest nation on planet Earth because of our freedoms and because of our allegiance to God, yeah, you know, that I think we're the best nation on Earth. We're great. But here's the thing. We need to be extremely careful with nationalism. When we start thinking because we live here that we're better than people in other countries, when we start thinking that human life in the United States is more important to God than human life in Mexico or Canada or other parts of the world or third world countries, when we start thinking like that, we are not thinking like God. Amen. 
Just because we live in a great country doesn't mean that God loves us any more than he loves anyone else in the world. God calls all people who will accept him into his family, regardless of where they're from, their socioeconomic uh, status, their color of their skin. It doesn't matter. God loves all people, and we are all made in his image. You know what I think a lot of Christians believe? We believe Jesus Christ was just this white dude with blue eyes, and he was not. And he was not an American. And sometimes we need to step back and say, we are not the center of the universe. He is, and he loves all people. Just want to throw that out there. So Paul tells them that God determines the success of nations and people. So after he says this, this would have been a sore subject for the Greeks. Remember, they had been conquered by the Romans, right? The most intellectual people in history were conquered by the aggressive Roman Empire. And so when Paul says, listen, God determines the success of peoples and nations, Again, that is something for us in modern day the United States that we need to remember. We must remember that God is in control. He is sovereign over everything. And as it says in the book of Romans, all authorities that exist have been established by God. Even the ones we don't agree with, even the ones we don't like, even outside of my knowledge and understanding, every leader that has ever existed, even the evil ones were allowed to have a certain amount of power because God allowed that to happen. And throughout the Bible, there are times when evil empires would come up because the people of God needed to be humbled. And so God would allow evil leadership to come up to humble people. And so we need to step back and say what Daniel says in, in uh, the book of Daniel chapter two, he removes kings and he sets up kings. God is ultimately in control. And we should find comfort in that. We shouldn't be afraid of that. We should find comfort in that, and we should remember that. So here's probably the most important part of this chapter, in my opinion. Paul says something really groundbreaking here, really interesting. In order to share the gospel with these people in Athens, in order to build a bridge, in order to relate and communicate with them, he quotes a poem called the Hymn to Zeus, okay? That means he must have known this poem pretty well had it by memory, right? So he quotes this line from a poem uh, called Hymn to Zeus, and what he's showing is this. He's taking truth from a poem that's written to a false god, where it says we are all offsprings of God. That's, that's the truth. Even though a man that wrote it didn't know the truth, truth came out. And so what we learn from that, and I'm gonna walk very carefully with this point, what we learn is all truth is God's truth. And we can hear God's truth sometimes in different things that are not overtly Christian or not Christian at all. I was talking to my wife about this slide last night. She's like, well, you we gotta be careful with that slide. And I'm like, yes, I do. I gotta, I gotta be very careful. But it's interesting. You guys are gonna laugh at me for this one. It's like Tupac, right? Because I know all you guys listen to Tupac all the time. But if you go back and listen to Tupac, which I'm not saying you should, there were certain truths, and he would be kind of a 21st century poet, if you will, that if you can pull out certain truths from his music, though he was not a good guy, right? He did a lot of bad stuff. It was the equivalent of him quoting a poem about Zeus of someone in our day and age connecting with someone at a coffee shop saying, well, it's kind of like that Tupac song. Let me take this line and relate this to a truth about God. That's essentially what Paul is doing here. And it shows the importance of us somehow making a connection and safely, I put that word safely in there, building a bridge through non-Christian avenues. I know some of you guys are probably sweating right now. Wait a second, I thought we're only supposed to watch Christian movies and only supposed to listen to Christian music. That's great if you do that. You're gonna have a really hard time relating to someone that's not a Christian. Just throwing that out there. I'm a big David Bowie fan, right? I don't know if anyone else likes David Bowie in here, but I wear David Bowie t-shirts and my, wa my wife wore a David Bowie t-shirt yesterday, actually. And so I wear my David Bowie t-shirt, Ziggy Stardust, and I'll go into different places like coffee shops and it always strikes up a conversation with people. I'll always have a barista at Just Love or Starbucks or something say, wow, you're a David Bowie fan? And I'm like, yeah, you're a David Bowie fan. And we'll talk about David Bowie for a second. And they're like, well, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. And they're like, wow, there's pastors that like David Bowie? And I'm like, yeah, there's three of us, you know, I'm one of them, you know, and I don't know who the other two are, but, but, but what we do is we find some common ground. 
Now, do I agree with everything that David Bowie has done or, or written in his songs? No. Do I listen to all of his music? No, because there's some that does get a little weird and out there, and I avoid that. But what it does is it builds a bridge between me and this non-believer. I can't expect a non-believer to find common ground over Christian media. They're not Christians. So I have to have some kind of a bridge or some kind of a connection to make with them. That doesn't mean I compromise my faith or buy into everything that David Bowie or Robert Smith from The Cure or, or Duran Duran says. It doesn't mean that I agree with absolutely everything. But it means I connect with them on some level, and we can talk about this just like what Paul did. Now, we need to be careful about that, right? Well, Corey says I can start a Bible study in a strip joint. We're making bridges, right? No. <laughs> That's not a good idea, right? <laughs> I said safely build bridges. David Bowie's safe. Strip joints, not so much, right? So there's common sense that plays into that. So in five short verses, we hear this unbelievable doctrine of God from Paul. Paul says God made the world, God gave all people life, God controls the nations, and God revealed himself through Jesus Christ so people could seek him and have a personal relationship. That is some heavy, heavy, concrete, fundamental doctrine of God, and Paul lays it out. So since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man that he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. So Paul talks about the idol worship, the idolatry in Athens head on. He says, look, since we are God's children, we're his offspring, we shouldn't think that God is like gold or silver or stone or some kind of an idol that we can create. What Paul is saying is this, since we came from God, we don't have the right to fashion God into whatever we want him to be. Now, this is still a problem in the United States. We look at the Greeks and we're like, wow, this is nuts that they would make up all these gods. We do it all the time. Even in Christianity, we take Jesus and we don't follow the biblical Jesus. We want to make our own Jesus, right? This is what I think Jesus would do. Well, where do you get that from? Because when you go into the Gospels, I don't know if Jesus would agree with you, right? And so we seem to still fashion our own kind of God. And Paul says, you can't do that. He made you, you didn't make him. Therefore, he decides who you are, who we are, who he is, right? We don't have that choice. And so not only is fashioning our own God incorrect, universalism is incorrect. Now, this offends a lot of people. Not only did the Athenians create their own image of God, they created lots of various gods. So here's where it gets offensive. Not only does the Bible clearly state in the Old Testament and New Testament, right, Deuteronomy 6, 4, there's one God. If you go into the book of John or if you go into the book of Matthew and Jesus says, there's only one pathway to God, that is through me. There's not multiple paths, there's only one path. Not only does the Bible clearly state that, the Bible also clearly states, this is where I'm gonna get offensive, guys. It also clearly states that any other ideas of gods are not gods at all, they are demonic Here's where it gets offensive. If you get in, if you want to go down the rabbit hole of Hinduism, and I know Hindu people who are extremely kind, loving, gentle people. They're not bad people, but they don't know the truth yet. If you get into Hinduism, that is a doctrine of demons. That's a very offensive thing to say. If you get into guys like Aldous Huxley, did anyone read Brave New World in high school? Anyone? Does no one read that book anymore? Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. It's considered one of the greatest books ever written. Aldous Huxley in the 20th century was deeply involved in psychotropic drugs, hallucinogenic drugs. And you'd be shocked when you get into the occult and when you get into a bunch of these guys who wrote about hallucinogenic drugs, almost all of them would have visions of the Hindu god Kali. Almost all of them. You can read Aldous Huxley, Timothy Leary from the 1960s, you older people in here, had images of when he would meet Kali when he was doing hallucinogenic drugs. That is a Hindu god. It was a demon. 
This was the God that stuck its tongue out and they would all write about these things. Any other doctrine besides the doctrine of Christ, according to the Bible, is a doctrine of demons. It's a way to trick people into worshiping something else besides the true God. Not only that about universalism, anyone who has any logic in their head knows that universalism does not work. There is no major religion that agrees with another major religion and it doesn't contradict. They completely contradict. The, the, everything cannot be right. Not every pathway works. It is just common sense. If we study it and look at it, it becomes contradictory and it becomes ridiculous. And Paul wanted to make that clear. So now that the people of Athens had been shown the truth, Paul says the time of ignorance has passed. Now, because the time of ignorance has passed, God now commands that all people everywhere repent because one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to judge us. He's going to judge what we've done with the knowledge we've been given. So here's the thing, guys. When you and I realize that our thoughts and actions that we've had are contrary to the Bible, we're called to ask for forgiveness, not just ask for forgiveness, we're called to take steps to live differently. It's not truly repenting if we don't take the steps to change the way we think and act. It's the definition of repentance. We have to change the way we think and act. So moving from this very broad doctrine of God, right? God made the world. God made all the people. God controls everything. Moving on from that, Paul goes into the gospel, specifically talking about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And what we see from this, listen, we get nervous when we talk to non-believers. He was talking to the most educated, influential, affluential non-believers on planet earth. And as he's talking to them, we see how smoothly he puts things in context and how he relates to them. Now, here's the thing, guys. I talked about David Bowie and Tupac, right? We're not to compromise our beliefs. We're not to compromise what our standards and biblical allegiances are. When we build bridges with people, right, that doesn't mean I compromise my views on sexuality or, or sex with outside of marriage or doesn't mean I compromise uh, greed or materialism or doesn't mean any of that. I can hold on to my truths and I can still find a way to adapt and connect to people differently than me. And we have to find a way to do that. That's why the Christian bubble is so dangerous to me. When we only hang out with Christians and we only do overtly Christian things, we run the risk of not being able to relate and connect with people different from us. Now that takes wisdom, it takes intelligence, it takes common sense, but we've got to be able to find some kind of bridge between us and people that are different from us, even the most eclectic people, okay? Last part. So when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear more from you about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Okay? So after hearing that Jesus was raised from the dead, some are like, this is ridiculous. But interestingly enough, some were intrigued by that, and they wanted to hear more. Now, here's the thing. The Greeks had no problem with spiritual immortality. They had no problem with that. They believed in the e eternity. They believed that the soul lived forever. But the idea of a God coming and dying and resurrecting, that was just too much for some of them. They just couldn't handle it. And so though there were more people that scoffed and laughed at them than there were people who wanted to know the truth, Luke writes that some people joined. Some people believed. Now, this is a big deal. One of them was a guy named Dionysius who was named after a Greek god and was a judge. This was a very powerful man. And there's a woman named Damaris who must have also been educated and powerful or she wouldn't have been up on Mars Hill. So you have a powerful, influential man. You have a powerful, influential woman. And these two, and it said some others, came to know Christ. So here's what's interesting. Now we're starting to see that even though the majority didn't, there was a seed planted in the city of Athens. And Luke does not portray this as a loss. Again, though more people at this time scoffed, though there is no church that is formed in Athens at this time, Luke still portrays this as a win. Let me tell you a fun fact about Athens, Greece today. 
Every year in Athens, Greece, at Mars Hill, right next to the Parthenon, they raise the Greece flag to half mass on Good Friday. You know what that means? They are recognizing that someone had died that day. And then on Easter Sunday, they raise the flag to full mass, implying that that dead person has raised from the dead. Every year in Athens, Greece, they celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So was there a huge success when Paul was there in person? No, but a seed was planted, and now the city as a whole recognizes that Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave. That is cool, right? What a neat fact. The bottom line, though, is this. We cannot control the results. We are not called to control the results. That's up to God. That's up to people's individual responses. Paul was not told to go change everyone. Paul was told to present to them the opportunity to change. So Paul condemns idolatry and sin. He shows them the need to repent. He explains the certainty of Jesus coming back and judging mankind. And then, of course, the whole reason he's there, he offers salvation through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Now, their decision after that was not Paul's problem. It was up to them there at that point, okay? So here comes the fun part when we ask ourselves questions, right? To us, we think the idea of a people, listen to this, we think the idea of a people who would create shrines and put all of their time, money, and energy into these Greek gods, we find that ridiculous, We read this and we're like, man, those people were nuts. They put all of their time, money, and energy into these things that aren't even real. They're not even important in the grand scheme of things. Look at American culture. (laughs) Guys, I'm just going to go there for a second. I know you guys can think I'm the biggest jerk on planet Earth. And I have nothing against sports, but I'm going to make fun of them for a second and, and point out how that's become an idol in our culture. If an alien came from Mars during football season in the South... Theoretically, right? They're coming down in their spaceship. They look out over the United States on a Sunday. They look at the United States on a Monday, right? They look out and they see these huge buildings filled with 100,000 people. And everyone is losing their junk as this little brown thing goes back and forth. People are getting in fights. People go out in the parking lot and beat people up that wear different shirts of different animals that they follow. It does sound ridiculous, doesn't it? And we put 13 or 14 billion dollars a year into that while there are children starving in the same cities where they have these stadiums, right? Where they have public schools where teachers have to buy their own supplies. And we think it's ridiculous that the Greeks worshiped all these gods. Have we made idols in our culture? Oh, heck yes, we have. If you were an alien looking out at the United States on Super Bowl Sunday, if you were an alien looking at Panama City Beach during spring break, if you looked at our commercials, if you looked at our movies, if you looked at what was important, if you took the economy of the United States and showed where that went, If you showed where our time, money, and energy went, an alien would step back and say, wow, their gods are sports and sex and politics. Those are their gods. Look at their gods. Wow. If they were completely ignorant to the way we lived. Paul would have been just as equally upset if he were to walk around the United States as he did in Athens, I believe. So do we have idols in our lives? Well, of course we do. How do you know if you have an idol in your life? Look at where your time, money, and energy goes and you'll find out what's truly important to you. You'll find out. When we say, man, I don't have any idols in my life. I spent five hours a day on Netflix, but I don't have any idols in my life. I don't have any idols in my life. I cannot live without this cell phone, but I have no idols in my life. Corey, come on. I have no idols in my life. I've gone tens of thousands of dollars in debt for things that I don't need, but I don't have any idols. Of course we do. Are we also unaware as Christians that God will not share and occupy the same space as another God? Do you guys know that? One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the Philistines, and I've told you guys this story before. The Philistines had a God named Dagon. Dagon was a God that was half fish, half human, right? If I'm going to create a God in my head, I, I think I would just do better than that. But anyways, half fish, half human. 
In the Old Testament, the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant from the Jews. They went to war and they got the Ark of the Covenant. If you're not familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, the big gold box represented the power of God, represented God essentially, right? So they take the Ark of the Covenant, they put him in the same room, the same temple as their God, Dagon, a big 30-foot statue of Dagon, right? In the same room. If you read the Bible, what happens the next day is the statue of Dagon had fallen down. So they come in, the Philistines are like, whoa, this is weird. All right, we got to get our God back up on its feet, right? So they get all these people and they get all these things and they get Dagon back on his feet and they're like, okay, man, all right, we're good. They leave. The next day, they come back into the temple. Not only had Dagon fallen a second time, but his head and hands had been cut off. What is the moral of the story? The true God will not share the same space as another God. One has to go. That's when they gave the Ark of the Covenant back to the Jews. We don't want this around us. Go into the New Testament, and Jesus affirms that. He says, no one can serve two masters. You will either love one and hate the other. And he says, this is what he says. He he says, man cannot serve God and money. Materialism, greed. We can't do both. We can't be in love with money and in God at the same time. Do we have idols? I think many of us do. Have we repented for those? If we've identified idols in our life, have we asked God to forgive our sins, the things that we've put before him, the things that we've done wrong? Not just once upon a time, But every time we sin against God, I get a kick out of Southern Christian culture. Man, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 13. What do you mean I have to continually repent? You do because you continually sin. Every time you take communion, you have to do it with a repentant heart. That means at the very least, once a week before you take communion, you should ask God to forgive you of your sins. This idea that we say a prayer once upon a time and we're set, right, is bogus and it's not biblical. And so people come up to me all the time. Hey, can you pray for my cousin? I'm not worried about his salvation, but he's doing heroin, cheating on his wife, and you know, he like kills animals for fun, right? Like, can you, can you pray for him? But I'm not worried about his salvation. I'm like, really? I am? I'm extremely worried about your cousin's salvation. Obviously, his connection to God didn't do anything for him, and we need to work on that. So have we made the necessary changes Not only do we repent every time we offend God, but have we made the necessary changes in order to live according to his word? Listen, and the reason why we live repentant lives isn't because we're constantly afraid of going to hell. I believe my salvation is secure, but here's the thing. If I love God the way I say I love God, if I upset him, I want to make it right. I love my wife. I don't think she's going to divorce me every time I make a mistake. But when I make a mistake, because I love her, I say, Alicia, I'm sorry. I'm going to try not to do it again. So whenever people say, well, I've already repented a long time ago. Man, I don't know if you love Jesus as much as you claim you love Jesus. Do we still live a repentant life? Do we take the steps necessary to change our course of action? Here's a big question. Does sin even bother us anymore? We're so desensitized to sin that it doesn't even make us upset anymore. Again, I get a kick out of Christians. I remember when Brokeback Mountain came out. Christianity, boy, everyone's like, Jesus is coming back in eight minutes. Here he comes. You know what I mean? Like the world was going to explode. I was teaching up in Chicago at that time. I, I was asked to speak at a conference in Chicago. And so I'm up in Chicago and I showed a trailer for Brokeback Mountain. The church was just aghast, right? (gasps) My God, our kids, you know, I mean, everyone's freaking out. You know what the number one show in America at that time amongst evangelical women was? Desperate Housewives. So the same group of people were like, my God, that sin had already turned a blind eye to a married woman sleeping with an underage boy. We'd become desensitized. I'm appalled by that, but these personal sins of mine, I'm okay with these, right? So we've become so desensitized to violence and blasphemy and hatred and greed and sexual immorality. We don't even know what's up anymore. Does sin even still bother us? I would say to a lot of us, some do, but a lot, not so much anymore. And then the last thing, do we still believe in the power of Jesus Christ? Do we still believe that Jesus' resurrection sets us free from sin's dominion? 
So many people claim, at least to me, to be saved. I'm saved. I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. I'm saved. If we are saved, the Bible says in Romans 6 and in Colossians 2 that we are set free from sin's dominion. So therefore, if we are new creations in Christ, it says in Romans 6 that we live in a new manner. We live in a different way. So if people tell me that your uncle Cletus got saved when he was 13, despite his heroin addiction and infidelity, I would say that if he had truly been saved, his lifestyle would look different. Because the fruit tells us what kind of a tree it is, says Jesus. You'll know a tree by its fruit. So whenever people say, I'm saved, but I still live the same way, that's not biblical. We are new creations. We are different. It says in Romans that the old self has been crucified. So if the old self has been crucified, there's a new way of living. And so whenever people tell me I believe in the resurrection, the resurrection isn't just about Jesus. The resurrection is about us. It says that we are resurrected through baptism into a new way of life. That because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we are resurrected not just in eternity, but we're resurrected here. As Jesus prayed, let heaven come down to earth. That we are to walk a different path. And if we are not walking a different path, I may argue that I don't think you've been liberated yet. I don't know if you've been saved yet. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have dark spots. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. Man, the end of last year, I was in a dark spot. But it's temporary. And we go back to the cross. And we remember that Jesus has set us free of sin's claims. We go back and we ask for his forgiveness. We take the steps to change. We pray. We read the word of God. We rekindle that fire and that relationship we had with him. Listen. If God doesn't change us after we're saved, I don't know what the point of all this is. If life doesn't get different now, like Jesus claims it does, in more abundance here, if there's no difference after our conversion, why do we buy buildings and chairs? And why do I get up here and yell and scream? Why is there worship music? Why do you tithe? Why do you get involved if there is no change? So I ask you, do, do you guys still believe in deliverance? We don't talk about it in church anymore. We're afraid of it. We're so afraid to pray for God's deliverance. Now, do I, do I, do I think you're going to be perfect? No. But let me tell you this. The closer we are to the proximity of perfection, which is Jesus Christ, the better we get. The more we start to look like him and think like him and talk like him and act like him and love like him. Our proximity to Jesus and his throne matters. And we start to live better lives. We start to be more righteous. We start to be set apart for God to use us. We're justified by Jesus. But we must have a relationship with Jesus. There is freedom. There is liberation in Christ. That he breaks the chains of addiction and depression and anxiety and materialism in low self-esteem, in arrogance, all these things, that we can be delivered from those things. Do you still believe that? Would you bow your heads with me, please? So here's what I would ask out of you today, if you're in this room. The first thing I would like you to ask yourself and, and, and to pray about is I would love you to do an inventory and just ask God, God, if I have put other things before you. Now listen, all idols are not inherently evil. We can make an idol out of our spouse. There's nothing wrong with our spouse. But if they become more important than Jesus, that's become an idol. And that priority needs to be shifted. There's nothing wrong with sports. I know I dig on sports all the time. There's nothing wrong with it. Baseball season's starting up. I love baseball. But if keeping up with the St. Louis Cardinals becomes more important to me than hanging out with my wife and kids and, and reading the word of God and praying, that's become an idol and it becomes wrong. My first thing is I ask you to ask God to show you the idols in your life. Maybe it is social media. Maybe it's television. 
Maybe it's success or your job or your car or whatever it is, but let God show you that. And once God has showed you that, ask God to forgive you. God, forgive me for putting these other things before you. The reason why it's a 10, a ten commandment to not put anything before God is because that separates us from him. It diminishes our relationship with him. And so repent for those things. That's God to forgive you. And then the last thing is if you, wanna, if you wanna be in here, if you wanna take communion after you repent, it's all around where there's tables, where there's lamps. You're welcome to do that. Represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, that died and resurrected so you could also resurrect. So you could be delivered. So you could be set free. So that you could be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you could have wisdom and knowledge. So you could be encouraged. You're welcome to help yourself to that communion that reminds us that God resurrected because we could resurrect. So we could resurrect. And then there's also people up here at the front. If you need prayer for anything, if you're struggling, let one of these men or women of God lay their hands on you and pray for you. Pray for you to be delivered. Pray for you to be encouraged. Pray for help, pray for strength, whatever you need, please let them pray for you. And if you're in here and you're a non-believer, I just pray that you have an objective mind, that you felt comfortable and welcome and that you'll come back. Lord Jesus, God, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. God, keep your hand on us, Lord, lead us, guide us. God, for all my brothers and sisters in here, Lord, please help us to identify the things in our life that, that have maybe gotten our priorities out of whack. Lord, let us be a repentant people. And Lord, let us still believe that your resurrection resurrects us as well, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We lift you up, God. Be with my brothers and sisters this week until we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much.